Good morning, everyone. If you would, turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Ruth. We finished up our long series on Philippians. For those of you who don't know, we've worked since January through the book of Philippians. I will say I was only here every other week, so yes, it's only four chapters, but I was only here half the time. So we're going to look in this Advent and Christmas season um, with Naomi and Ruth to be kind of sojourning with them in the season of the next. And for those of you who are not familiar with the church calendar, Advent simply means coming, as was just said. It's the season of kind of the looking forward, the anticipation. It's the season where we celebrate that coming period, that waiting period. And we kind of camp out there for a little bit. And as most of you know, the Christmas season is the arrival. It's here. We celebrate Jesus has come and he's here. But Advent is that, that little bit of period before Christmas where we lean into the it's not here yet, but it's coming. Where we celebrate that. And as you know, our society doesn't really like that season, right? They, they kind of skip over that and just jump straight to um, Christmas because Christmas you get to open your presents, right? Everything's here. You get the right now. It's right in front of me. Uh, but I'd like to, in this season, kind of camp out here. So like children, I'd like to, to kind of like shake our Christmas presents. You know, children, before Christmas, they go and get their presents from under the tree and they shake it and they wonder what's inside. And I want us to kind of lean into this season, wherever you're at, whatever season it might be, and kind of shake this season that God might have you in and see what does God have for us in the coming season? What is God going to do next for us? So, as I said, Ruth is the book that we're going to be looking at in this Advent season. So we'll look this morning at Ruth 1, 1 through 5. These are the words of God. I'll be reading from the ESV through this series. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malone and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The word of the Lord for his people. Let's pray. Father, as we approach such a heavy text, we ask that you would speak to us clearly, that we would think rightly about it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon these words, upon my words, that the things that I say would be honoring to you. Lord, I pray that the thoughts, the words, the meditations of my heart, our hearts, would be pleasing to you, our God and our rock, our Redeemer. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, many of you are probably wondering, why in the world did we just stop at verse Five, right? If, if, if you know this story at all, you're thinking, what? Why? Why did we just stop there? I thought we were in this happy Advent season. Now, yes, better days are ahead, right? That's that's why we would keep reading. This is true enough. But the reason I chose to only look at these first five verses is because there was a point in Naomi's life when this is all that she knew. 
Right? Naomi lived in this reality, and this was the only reality that she understood, that she was experiencing. She didn't have the privilege of looking forward. There was a day when Naomi's husband chose to move her family from the hometown because there was no food on the table. Right? Can you imagine that kind of anxiety, that kind of stress that you'd have with that uncertainty where the kids are coming home and saying, Mom, what's for supper? And Naomi kind of looks at her husband a little like... Did you make? Did we get anything today? No food. Another day. The kids are complaining. They're hungry. They don't know what they're going to do next. This was the reality that they were living in, and they didn't have that privilege of knowing what is actually next. So Naomi moved to a foreign place, which was scary enough. She moved from her home, that comfy place where she was, and then she lost her husband, the one who had led her out into Moab. That person is now dead. Now, some of you in this room, you've lost loved ones. You've lost people that you care about, people who were there for you, kind of your person that you leaned on in times of trouble. Now, do you remember that gut feeling that you got when you lost that person, wondering, what is next? How do I I move forward? How do I keep going? Well, Naomi did keep going. I don't think she knew exactly how she was going to do it, but she did move forward. And then this mother of two married off her two sons. And we don't know how she felt about this. We tend to think that marriages are always happy. But if you consider what was actually going on here, it might have actually been a bit of melancholy that she was experiencing. Because here she's marrying off her two sons without her husband. Right? I can remember at my brother's wedding. My father barely made it to that wedding. He just got released from the hospital hours before. It wasn't even a day before. He was wearing his mask before everyone was wearing a mask when it was not cool because he had no immune system. He had just got through a bunch of he got through a bunch of uh, chemo and had no way of resistance. So he was here in a in a building that is potentially dangerous to him. And it was just a little bit melancholic, even with him there. I can remember it being an emotional day for. My brother, for my mom, for myself, here my brother's getting married, and dad was there, and he almost didn't make it. But can you imagine Naomi, where he didn't make it to the wedding? He didn't make it to the wedding of their two sons. And on top of that, not only did she go through this wedding with her two sons without her husband, they were marrying Moabite wives. How would that have felt? Now, to kind of bring this up to speed, my brother marries a Moabite. That doesn't really click with us in our culture now. But if you bring it up to speed, my brother marries a Moabite, or marries an unbeliever, a non-Christian, and dad's dead. Can you imagine that kind of stress, that kind of anxiety? It wouldn't really be that happy of a day. It would have been probably a tear-filled day. Yes, there would have been been a bit of joy, but my mother, uh, if I know her at all, she would have rolled over in her grave knowing that her son was going to be, or that my father would have uh, rolled over in his grave knowing that his son would have been unequally yoked, married an unbeliever. It would be like my brother marrying a Muslim, something like that. It would have been just a hard day. So this was Naomi's lot. There's there's not much joy that we see in this first section here, and it's not over. Then the Moabite unbelievers who are now hooked up and hitched to the family, they're there and the sons die. So then it's just Naomi left with these two pagan women that she probably resents and three gravestones to visit. This is a rough reality that Naomi is experiencing. And this is where she was. 
And this is where I want us to kind of camp out this morning for a little bit. Now, all of us are saying, if you just turn the page, it all works out. And it does. It does. If you turn, just, just a, even just start reading a couple verses ahead, things start to brighten up and get a little bit better. But that's why I decided not to keep reading. Most of the time, we just want to skip over the hard parts of life and ignore the fact that they even happened. But sometimes God puts us there for a reason. He's trying to show us things in that season. I wanted you all to live with that reality with Naomi for a short time this morning because she didn't have that privilege that we all have of just reading a little bit of head. All she knows at this moment is death and bitterness. We'll see later on that she becomes bitter at the, these circumstances that have happened to her. And this is where I want to camp out. We need to become a little bit more prepared to um, lean into these seasons that God might put us in. How do we respond? How do we react to what God might doing, to the uncertainties of life? Because we don't know what tomorrow holds. That's the song we just sung. We don't know. God knows, but we don't know. And we have to learn to experience that in the right way. So um, what we're going to need to realize is that if we're living by just what's in front of us, just looking at the death and the bitterness, that's not actually healthy. We can, we can live in that moment, but we don't have to um, depend on what we see. What we need to do is live by faith. Faith is the substance of things unseen. It's the, the hope that we have. That's that assurance of hope. So if a, a faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, we have to live by not sight, but by hope. Right? By looking forward, that, that coming, that anticipation. And if we aren't living by hope, we aren't standing on the promises of God. And if we aren't standing on the promises of God, we're going to be unsure of what decision we need to make next. We're without guidance. If we're not looking at God's word and seeing what he has had, said, what we, we can bank on, what we can put our feet firmly on, we don't know what to do next. And this is kind of where Naomi was. And we need to be ready for a season like that in our lives if it hits. So to kind of give you a guiding outline, um, a little bit of what we're going to do this morning is it's just kind of intro to the book of Ruth. So I'm going to try to just get through it quickly, but it does help us kind of see Ruth with the right lens. So what we're going to do is look at this book um, through uh, the lens of a literary piece. Because it is. It's a story, but it's an inspired story. This is God's word. So we're going to look at it um, as a literary piece that is inspired. And we're going to look at the setting because that's what a story does. You look at the setting of the story. And once we're in the setting, we're going to focus on the literary context of Ruth, the historical context of Ruth. Then we'll look at the narrative itself. So the story, what's actually happening. And then most importantly for us, what does it mean? How does it relate to us? How do we respond in light of this true story that God has gifted to the church for us, even in this moment now? So, as I said, we'll look at the setting, which is really just these first five, five verses. That's Act 1. If you want to think of it like a play playing out, this is Act 1. And as you know, every good story begins with a bit of tension. And you can see it here. You can see there's plenty of tension starting the story out. There's death upon death. Upon death, we have three deaths and a big move in this just crazy chaotic time starting out. And we're wondering, how does this get resolved? Where, where do we look in times of uncertainty? So the literary context of Ruth, we can see that it is historical. It's a historical book. We can see this because it offers us three things. It offers us a time, a place, and particular people. We can see in verse 1, it's in the, in the days of the judges. So there's your time. The place is Bethlehem. That's a historical place. You can point to that on the map and say, this is really a place. And most importantly, that confirms this, there's a genealogy. 
There's particular people. Chapter 4, verse 18 through uh, 22, it gives a long genealogy, and it starts out, These are the generations of Perez, the son of Judah. These are real people, in a real time, in a real place. And we have to read it like that. This isn't just a story, a fictional story. It's Yes, it reads like a narrative, but this actually happened. This is true history. So since it's history, we, we, need, we need to see what is the history. Where is this place that is um, called Judah? Where is Bethlehem? What's going on in the days of the judges? That's what we see in verse 1. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. Now, does that mean anything to you? When the, in the days when the judges ruled. The narrator's trying to point out here that there's a sense of chaos and uncertainty on top of everything that is about to happen here. The context is set in craziness. Judges, is a, it's a period of gore. It's a period of blood. It's a period of just nasty decisions. Just to kind of give you a highlight, I'm going to, in three points, kind of work through the book of Judges. And you'll, rem- you'll remember very quickly, if you've read through your Bible before, how nasty Judges is. Think Samson beating people to death with a donkey, donkey's jawbone, right? Thousands of people, he's beating them. So, so kind of just get that picture in your mind, the days of the Judges. Think women driving tent pegs into men's temples while they're asleep. Right? That happened in Judges. Really weird, creepy stories. This is a woman calling a guy in saying, come sleep here, I'll, I'll take care of you. And he falls asleep and tink, tink, tink. Like, that, that's next. Okay, so think rape, think molestation, think murder, think women chopped up into little bitty pieces and sent out to the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? This is a nasty time. These are the days when you walk out with your coffee in the morning to get your mail and you look down. And there's chunks of human flesh to send a message to the people in Israel. And the message is, things are getting bad. It's really, really nasty out here. And this is the days that Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and all these people that we'll find in the story lived in. It was a little bit crazy. It was a little bit chaotic. So things were getting bad because, do you remember the refrain in the book of Judges? Because everyone did what? What was right in their own eyes. Their judgment was on whatever I decide to do, whatever I want to do. That's what's going to be best. That's going to be my moral compass. So sin was rampant, and when there's no moral guide, when there's no ethical standard, as you all know, chaos ensues, right? It's craziness. It's there's nothing. There's nothing guiding the people, keeping them in line. And corporate unity or development, progress, any of that, all of that's impossible when everyone is just doing whatever they want. You have to have someone or something leading you. What they needed was a king. That's that's kind of the whole picture of the book of Judges. There was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They needed someone who would bring a resolution to this. So we see in verse 1, this is the days that they were in, the days of the Judges, and there was famine in the land. Well, of course there's famine in the land. How can you expect anything but famine in the land when you're living this kind of way? When people are doing whatever they want, there's not going to be order. There's not going to be economic order where you can have progress. You're not going to have food on the table. It's going to be craziness. It's going to be everyone doing whatever they want. And people just kind of doing this over here and then them doing that over here. You can't have order. And while we see that judges is a day marked by man doing whatever he wants in his own eyes, we do see that God is ultimately kind of presiding as the judge above it all. And the judgment of God is... You guys need to look somewhere else but yourself, right? The the judgment is, I'm not going to bless what you guys are doing. I'm not going to bring prosperity to what you guys are doing because you're doing whatever you want to do. 
You're not consulting the one true judge of the world who knows best. You are doing whatever you want. So, of course, there's going to be people rebelling against this. And when there's people rebelling against this, chaos is there. So that's kind of the, the point I want you to get. This comes out of the book of Judges. If you, if you read, it's Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Right? And then First and Second Samuel, where we hear about the story of David, the king, the first king, of the first true king of Israel. So that's the historical context in the life of Israel. Now let's look at the story, the narrative. What is actually happening? Well, we have a family fleeing a really grim context, and we'll look at the individual people of this family, starting with Elimelech. Elimelech is the patriarch of the family. If you haven't caught that already, he's the, the one that's kind of leading the family um, and um, making those hard decisions for the family. He's the person who would have really kind of served as the judge of the family unit. So if everyone's kind of doing uh, what's right in their own eyes, they're going to look to Elimelech of this family unit. He's going to be making those hard calls. He's going to uh, be the, the person that everyone in the family is leaning on. And this is actually a good thing in, in many ways. When I said he's the patriarch, um, this is in the, the right sense of the word. Our, our culture right now hates that word. They think that's a horrible word, but it's actually a good thing for a man to lead his family, to make hard decisions on behalf of his family, and allow his family to kind of lean on him when things are getting hard. That's a good thing. So him leading his family, making a decision, making a hard call wasn't actually a bad thing. That was a good thing. We can honor Elimelech for being that man leading his family. So it's easy to kind of think, and our culture would quickly think, that Elimelech was just playing the grass is always greener on the other side card, right? He, he's just saying, well, things are going good in Moab, uh, Moab, so we'll just go over there. I'm just going to chase the money kind of thing. But that's not really the case. If, if you're looking at it, um, those, the, those people over there, uh, yeah, they, it might look a little bit better, but his own culture, that was nasty, right? That was pretty rank rebellion. People are slaughtering their own brothers in the land of Israel, Right, so it's not such such an easy call. We tend to look at this and say, "Well, he's just doing, he's just looking over there." But when everyone is uh, doing uh, what's right in their own eyes, you can see that God brings judgment upon this land, and you can kind of see Elimelech starting to think through this. Well, God's judgment is clearly upon this land. We can't expect expect blessing in a land of bloodbath. People are in rank rebellion. So this family is not necessarily fleeing a land flowing with milk and honey. Yes, it was promised that. But that's not what they were experiencing. It was not a land flowing with milk and honey. It was more so, if you want to think about it, like Dodge City. It's Dodge City and Papa Dodge is saying, family, we've got to get the heck out of Dodge. We've got to get out of here. Things are getting bad, and I don't want my family in this context. So it says that they sojourned into Moab. Now, Elimelech, it also says he was a man a man of Bethlehem in verse 1. And this is important. It's going to become even more important. Even though Elimelech dies right here and doesn't continue through the story, the fact that um, Bethlehem is even brought up is very important. Why? Because names in Hebrew actually mean a lot, especially in their stories. So a man of Bethlehem. Bethlehem actually means, does anyone know? Bethlehem means house of bread. That's interesting. There's a famine in the land, and this man of Bethlehem, the house of bread, is there. So you can kind of catch the irony. There's famine and the house of bread. Weird, right? There's there's this major theme that runs through Ruth where there's famine and barrenness in places that promise fruitfulness and blessing. 
There's the, that's, the, that's the tension that you see here. Do you, can, can you see it with me? Or, or the, there's this promising story, a land flowing with milk and honey. You're not experiencing that at all. Elimelech was a man of uh, Bethlehem, the house of bread, but that wasn't a house of bread at all at the time. So there's this kind of tension that needs to be resolved. What is going on here? What is God doing in this story? And what are they doing? How do they respond? Uh, we'll look at that in a minute. But let's first look at another person in the story. Look, let's look at Naomi. She was the pleasant wife. I believe the text even says that Naomi means pleasant. She's the pleasant wife. This is a wife who we can see from the story is quite lost without her husband. She's, she's a little bit confused um, and dazed when all of this happens. So she follows well in times of crisis, and she's not, but, but she's not always the most pleasant afterwards. Like when things don't go great, she's not that pleasant. She says, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. Now I find it interesting that Naomi is at the center stage in this first scene. Yeah? Um, the book is called Ruth. But for, for most of the story, you're actually following Naomi's life. What is Naomi doing? How does all this work out? Because Naomi's the Israelite that's following the Israelite. And then Ruth later on just kind of comes into the story. So Naomi is the center of the stage. And here's a woman who's been led by her husband away from her home into a strange land. And as you know, she's a mother, and mothers are nesters. She's probably made this place her home. She's comfy there. Things are going well. And women, they do a good job at making houses into homes. They make it a comfy place, and she's worked really hard at this, and then she gets forced out of the nest. She gets forced out of the home. And women in this day probably didn't have much say in this. If I had to guess, Elimelech kind of just came home one day and simply said, Honey, we can't do it anymore. There's no food on the table. There's no work in the land. I've found out that there's work in Moab. They're eating well over there. I want my family to be in a place of blessing, and we're just going to have to leave. And I've already booked a ticket. We got, a, we got a ship going to Moab. We're heading east next Shabbat after sundown. We're just going to do it. And she just had to say, okay. And she followed. So, and, and, and then do you think, if you think about it, Naomi, did she have control over who her sons would marry either? No. So here's another case. Her sons are just marrying off in this day. Men just took wives for themselves as they do most of the time these days. I mean, uh, uh, most men don't go and ask their mom if they can marry a woman. And they especially didn't do it back then. So all this happened not because Naomi chose it. That's what I kind of want to lean into it for a moment. It wasn't that Naomi chose it. It was kind of chosen for her. So here's this woman put in this really tough situation. I just want to peer into the meaning for a minute. And I, we don't know this for sure, but perhaps Naomi had um, had some of a, a bit of a sin problem. And perhaps her burden through all of this was to realize that she'd idolized her own family. We don't know this, but the, the story kind of hints that way in many ways. That where she looked at her husband for leadership and even at the expense of what God might be saying to her. She looked to our children to find joy and delight. And then when everything is stripped from her, her idol is taken away, that thing that she coddles and loves and finds comfort in. When all that is taken away, she's bitter. So maybe, maybe it is that God was doing something through this, and it's a place for God to test her faith, to see how is Naomi going to respond? What is she going to do in all this? And like Job, Naomi is stripped bare, and the world watches to see how she will respond to this uncertainty. How will Naomi respond to her uncertainty? And while we're asking that question, as we're getting ready to look in the story, I want to ask you, church, how will you respond in times of uncertainty? 
When the things that we coddle and hold close, those idols that we don't often think, we think an idol is just a, a whittled little idol on a shelf. But there's things that we have in our lives that we idolize. And if those things are stripped and taken away, will we still say, I will worship the God of the universe? Though he slay me, I will make my boast in him. He is he's the one I look to. He is my rock and my redeemer. Let's keep moving. So the sons, Milan and Chilion. It's funny, their names actually mean sickness and wasting. And, and you think about that. Why, did, why were they named that? Why were their parents named them that? I, we can think on the one hand, well, they were just being kind of cynical um, about things. We don't really know. But maybe it was something of the effect that they, they had children in this really tough land. And... Here's the land promising milk and honey. And in some ways, names were very much connected to like identity um, and worship and religion. All of that is tied in together. So in some ways, it kind kind of could have been kind of a jab at God. God, here's the land flowing of milk and honey. I just brought two children into the world, and they are going to be brought into a land of sickness and wasting. And it's funny, like many fairy tales, their names have a meaning, and their destiny actually becomes that, doesn't it? These two men who die very quickly, their names mean sickness and wasting. So as we've seen most of the big characters, so let's zoom out for a bit at the, the family unit. We see um, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem, the land of Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech, we've seen that. The name of the wife was Naomi, we've seen her. The names of the two sons were Malone and Chilion. Now this is what I want to look at. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. There's the place, and there's the family, and the kind of people that they are. Ephrathites means fruitful ones. Right? All these names, they, they really fill in the picture, don't they? Ephrathites means fruitful ones. Bethlehem, we said, means house of bread. Fruitful ones and the house of bread. And you know every Israel, Israelite reading this story would have thought, this is the most promising family you could see. Right? Ephrathites, the fruitful ones, living in a house of bread. There's the, the food that you could have. It's the land flowing with milk and honey. This is, the play, this is a promising family. They're set up for success. And then we see what happens next in the story, right? So there's the, the tension. Like, like a good story does, it starts out, wow, look at this amazing, great family, and then just crash. What? What is going on? That's how the story reads. And it's a really beautiful written story. And it's really beautiful because someone wrote it. And it's not fiction. Right? It's history. That's, that's what I want you to catch because we, as we kind of look at that big context here, I want you to see God writes beautiful stories. He writes the best stories. Every good story that you've read is just a ripoff of the story that God has written. It really is. Life, life is the greatest story. And we write about that. right? You can never replicate it just as good as God can. So let's look at the actual acts of the story. We see in verse 1 that there was a sojourn to Moab. A sojourn to Moab. Do you know what the word sojourn means if you think about it? It's a temporary stay. A temporary stay. Not a permanent stay. So uh, we can see that the language shows that it was intended to be for a time. A short time. And then we see in verse 2 that they remained in Moab. You see the, the difference? There's a sojourn that shows that it was meant to be temporary and started out to be a temporary solution to a problem in a family. But once they got there, it ended up being a permanent solution. They remained in Moab. 
They, they stayed there. And have you ever done this kind of thing that you set out on a sojourn to have a temporary solution to a problem that you have in your life and you ended up temporarily going there and you, you kind of just camped out in that season and you found out that it wasn't really a season. It ended up just being the way that you were living. I know I've found myself being there where you're, you're talking about, well, we just got to get through this season. We just got to get through it and get on to the next thing. And you start having people question you and you say, and they say, is it really a season, though? Or are you just living like that? Are you are you still doing what you intended to do originally? Is that still working for you? Or are you just kind of living on yesterday's bread? Are you just camping out where you shouldn't be? And then when you remain there, you found out that your judgment was sometimes skewed. You started making off decisions. You didn't even quite feel like yourself. You start kind of cutting corners on things, and you're just like, something's just not clicking right. Have you felt that before? I know I've felt that where we, where I've sojourned out and said, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it well. And you get there for a while and you start to just kind of get cozy. You stay there and you remain there when you're not supposed to stay there. So that's what this family did. They, they, they went there and what happened? All the men died. Right? These people that are supposed to be the most promising people, these leaders of the, of the family, the patriarchs, they're all dead, leaving the women childless. No children are born in here. Do you remember in Scripture how important children are, fruitfulness is? Barrenness was a curse. Right? If you're not having children, then that means that the offspring that God has promised is cut. Like there's nothing coming, right? Remember, because that's what Israel was promised. There's going to be this seed that comes. There's going to be children, and children are a great sense of hope to the people of Israel. So here they, they move into this land. No more children are coming. All the men are cut off, which is the source of children, right? They, they got women, but it takes two to tango. You, you know that, right? So, so you might say that all the seed, the men... Right? That's the, that's the seed. All the men have gone, leaving the fields, the women, fruitless and barren. Right? There's no, no hope. It's cut off. We've moved from a nutritional famine in the land to a family famine. How are we going to continue on? Naomi's old in her age. She has no husband. Here's these two women who also don't have husbands. How are we going to move forward? What is next? And this is what makes this story so mysterious. It's at this point that we begin to wonder, did these deaths have anything to do with that stay? With them remaining there? I want to sit on that question for just a moment. Because it's the kind of thing that you ask yourself, isn't it? When you get in these, these rough seasons where you're, you know you're remaining there and stuff starts happening, bad things start happening, and you start to ask yourself, you reflect a little bit, and you're like, Things aren't working out. Is God disciplining me? Did I kind of just, when that bad thing just happened, did God just in some way kind of spank me to like show me something, to kind of test me and uh, cause me to reflect and kind of just shake me to wake up? Right? We ask ourselves these questions, and I'm going to tell you right now that I'm not going to give you a clear answer to that because I don't know. I think the answer to that is about as clear as mud. And it's, it's clear as mud because when you're in those messy situations, you can't even think clearly. You don't know what is going on. It's just a hard situation, but you know that something is not right. You know that there's a problem that's going on. So that's what we're going to look at next. We're going to look at the meaning of this story. What does this all mean? As we look and reflect on all these things that have happened, we see that there's not any specific sins that are recorded in the narrative of any of the main characters. 
It doesn't say, and Elimelech sinned when he did this, or Naomi sinned when she did this. We don't see that. And you do see that a lot in Scripture, don't you? If you read, you, you see pretty much there's clear lines. This person sinned and this happened. And that's easy for us, right? So this highlights the fact that there's not specific sins recorded. This highlights the fact that their misfortune does not necessarily stem from any one certain mistake that they've made. If anything, the narrative suggests that they're reaping the harvest of a sinful people, right? It's the, kind of the corporate view. They lived in the times of the judges, a ruthless period where sin was regularly employed to advance individual desires. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's, that's the culture that they lived in. They also remained in a land not their own. God didn't say, I'm giving you this land. He told them, I'm giving you the promised land over here. So whatever we have to say about the decisions that they made, we know that in the end, it wasn't good. God didn't bless it. So it's, it's a little bit murky. Now, if you think about this, this is not unlike many of ourselves. The situations that we find ourselves in. Actually, everyone in this room, not just a couple of us, everyone in this room, we live in a land of rank rebellion. Our land does what is right in their own eyes. Our people shed blood in order to advance their own cause, just like the people in the days of Judges. We want sexual licentiousness without repercussions. In the days of the Judges, we look at them and we say, oh, gross, they chopped up humans limb by limb and dispersed them among the people. Right? We look at them and we say, oh, they're disgusting. We're so much more civilized now. We're so much more civilized. We, we do the same thing. We chop them up, but we, we don't do it out in the open. We, we do it behind closed doors. And we're in clinical labs. We do it in secret. No one sees anything. It's not nasty and in your face. And no, we, we don't disperse it among the people. But we do kind of test those chopped up human limbs. And we do put them in vaccines and have some really sketchy things going on. And we do disperse them among the people and put it in their arm. Right? We live in a land that is really, really nasty, and our government is sanctioning all this. And not only is our government sanctioning it, they're saying, we're going to approve this, and how are we going to pay for it? Oh, you're going to pay for it. Your money is paying for things like that. So we all have blood on our hands. It's easy to look at Elimelech and say, man, he just made a bad decision. He, he was getting his family out of the promised land. This is the place that was supposed to be good and promising. He left. What a, what a crazy guy. Why would he make such a rash decision? And then we get in this context and we look at our world and we're like, I feel like i got to get out of here. right? I'm going off the grid. I'm, I'm going to cut myself off. Like, What, what are you going to do? Really? We don't know. We don't know what they should have made, what decision they should have made. So we see that in these moments, we're really quick to paint a black and white picture, aren't we? It's clear as day. It's black and white, and we don't take the time. We're not patient enough to really color in the truth of the whole picture. Life's complex, isn't it? It's not easy to make some of these rash decisions or decisions that we think are rash. Like Elimelech, is he, I'm sure he thought about those decisions. I'm sure he was thinking hard about him. I'm sure he was even thinking about his family and his kids. And yet, we still see it might have not been the right decision. That's why I said it's about as clear as mud. Like We don't know clearly. We want to make quick judgments and say, well, we can see where sin leads. If he hadn't went to Moab, he wouldn't have died. If his sons hadn't married Moabite women, they wouldn't have died. If, the, if they wouldn't have done these things, then they wouldn't have had death. And the reality is, is black and white do exist. right? Black and white does exist. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. So there's the fact. That's what God's word says. But we don't always look at life in the light of grace either, do we? Right? If all things being equal and grace removed, yeah, that would have been the case. 
But isn't God so patient and gracious with us? And don't we all deserve sin or all deserve death? You sinned this morning, probably. You sinned this week for sure. And you, and you didn't die. And, and, and we laugh about that, and, and you should. It's, it's funny, but that's grace. That's grace. You should have died because of that. But there's someone that, 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 that did that for you. And you need to trust that God is actually doing something through all of these things that's a little bit more colored. It's not so black and white. We need to see life through the picture of grace. Now, when we ask these questions and we kind of point fingers, how is this any different than the disciples pointing at the blind man and saying, who sinned, this man or his parents? How is it any different? We don't know what would have happened to Elimelech. We don't know what would have happened to his sons. And you don't know what would have happened if you did things differently in your own life. Right? We don't know what could have happened or what should have happened. All we know is what did happen. And then we respond to that. And Jesus really says, you know what, guys? That's the wrong question to ask. Right? When he looks at the blind man, he says, actually, it's not his parents that sinned. It's not he that sinned. Actually, what does he say? That the works of God might be revealed in him. What does that mean? What does that mean for Elimelech? What does that mean for Naomi? What does that mean for you? What does that mean? It means that this man didn't choose his destiny. He didn't know this was going to happen. It was chosen for him with purpose. Remember, God writes the stories. He's the one that's orchestrating all of this. It means that Naomi didn't necessarily ask for what she got. We don't always ask for what we get in life. Sometimes it happens to us. And yes, there's repercussions to our sins. Yes, that, that, is, that is the reality. That's the black and white. But there's also a other color of grace that comes in that we can't quite see how God is working through all things. But we know that he is. That he is somehow working even through our sin. He works all things according to his purpose, his, his story, for our good. That's the beauty of it all. So perhaps Naomi was chosen to display the works of God. Perhaps you were chosen to show the works of God. That his grace might be seen in you through what God is doing in your life at this season. This is what I really want to lean into in this Advent season. I want us to learn to lean into the mystery of the providence of God. We don't know what our story holds. We don't know what our tomorrow holds. But we do know who holds it. As we read, or as we sung this morning. And we need to be able to respond, not with bitterness, but with faithfulness to him. We trust him through that. He is the one that holds our hand through this. And the world has no idea how to do this. And many people in the church don't even know how to do this. So I want us to really hone in on this and think about this fact. So the world has always been a confusing place. And it was very confusing until Jesus came. But think about that context there, right before Jesus came, the Advent season. It didn't seem very promising. It didn't seem like there was much hope. And they didn't really know how things were going to get resolved. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't know what he'd done and his great, amazing work. They didn't understand grace. Paul talks about that mystery of God hidden for ages. That mystery is God's plan and purpose in Jesus. He promised an offspring to the woman very early on, didn't he? He didn't leave him without promise. He didn't leave him completely in the dark. He left little glimmers of hope. 
even from the very beginning, that sin problem, the problem of evil in the world, he told us that there was going to be a resolution. He just didn't say how it was going to work out. But he said from the seed of the woman, there will come one, one of blessing, one that's going to fix these things. And they don't know how that works. All they know is that God's going to do it through seed. Like we got to keep this thing going. And then we see at the beginning of this story, it's cut off. How does that work? What is God going to do? What is God going to do next? So in times of crisis, what we end up doing is we start looking for pointers rather than promises. Now think about that. We think, I need a sign. I want God to do this. If you'll just show me this, God, then, then I'll act. But what God has already done is he's given us promises to act on already. Right? It says the Jews demand a sign. The Greeks want wisdom. They want philosophy. But what does Paul preach? He preaches Christ and him crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. So there's all this Jesus stuff that I talked to you about. It doesn't make much sense to the world, does it? You sound like a fool when you say, well, I know this season's hard. I know that I'm going through this. But the fact is, is I trust in Jesus. And they say, how does that help? But it's our only help. It's our only thing that we can bank on. The fact is, God has called his people into the promised land, and Bethlehem even meant house of bread. That was the reality, and they just forgot it. So as we kind of bring this home a little bit, we apply it to our own lives. We think choosing the next right thing, if we're going to live in the, the coming, the anticipation, the waiting, choosing the next right thing isn't always easy, is it? It's very complex. It's very hard, but it is possible. We are able to do this. We are able to trust in God. Many times we want to, tr- or many times God wants us to trust the promises that He's already given, instead of looking elsewhere. We don't look to our idols. We don't look to this or that. We don't look for waiting on some sign to do the next right thing. What God wants us to do is remember what He's already done, and then do the right thing. Right? God provided food in the wilderness. He gave manna. They looked around and they said, there's nothing. There's no way to get food here. I can't do it. There's no animals. There's no way to provide. There's no way to do it at all. And yet, God did it. And that's what he does in our lives very often. And what we do is we start to look at the famine as a sign. We say, well, this famine must be God's abandonment. he's, He's saying that he doesn't want me anymore. If he really loved me, he'd provide this for me. And we view it in the wrong way. It's not a sign of abandonment that Israel went through that famine, through that wilderness period. It was actually a time of testing. It was a time of them to be having their test or their faith tested. What are you going to do, children? What are you going to do, child? It's a test. It's discipline. It's God showing us to grow us, to become more mature, to be able to be wise and discerning and make decisions. We are spirit-filled Christians. We're able to make decisions. So there is the possibility of making the right choice. So we sometimes, unfortunately, have to hit rock bottom before we realize that, don't we? Sometimes everything's got to be stripped away. We've got to hit the bottom of the well and we start to look around the walls of the well and we say, nothing's coming out of here. Not only is the well dry, I hit dry bottom, there's no food, I don't know what to do, and the only place to do is to look up. And what do we do? We look up, and every time we look up, God is offering himself, not just nice things, but himself to us. To offer us the peace that we need, the hope we need. And he's not looking at us down the well and you can just, so many people, they, they picture this angry God. With furrowed brow and just mad. Why did you make all these bad decisions? That's not God. 
God looks down through the well when we've hit that rock bottom and said, I've loved you all along. I've been calling for you since you were halfway down to come back up. Why, Why don't you just call and I'll bring you up. I'll draw you up. I'll draw all men to myself. Just look to me. I'm the, I'm the source. I'm the hope. I love you. I'll take care of you. I'll be your true hope. I'll be the patriarch that you always wanted. Even if it's taken away, that temporary solution, I'll be your permanent solution. I'll be lasting. I'll be here for you. So the main message, I know it's kind of been a little bit crazy of a sermon, but it's a crazy text, right? There's, there's a lot of messiness to it. So the main message, you need to get this. Life is crazy. God is not. Right? Life is crazy. God is not. People are chaotic, but God is not. God is not chaotic. If you want the stability, hope, direction, and sustaining life, you aren't going to find it in Moab. That's the reality. You're not going to find it in Moab. You're only going to find it in the man from Bethlehem. You're not even going to find it in Bethlehem. You're going to find it in something coming from Bethlehem. So if you're reading this story, the best way to reflect at the end of it, of this first scene, is to ask, what would I do if I were Naomi? What would I do? Because you might be in that situation. What would you do? How do we respond to economic disaster? That probably seems like a closer possibility than it has ever seemed. In my lifetime, and I'm sure many of your lifetimes, what do you do in economic disaster when there's no food on the table? Financial ruin. The markets are crazy right now. Inflation's out the roof. We don't know what's going to happen. How are you going to respond? To domestic instability. What happens if you lose your house? Especially if you don't own your house. What happens if you don't have this kind of thing to stand on? What if your family collapses and a lot of death comes your way? What if COVID wipes out half your family? Because it does sometimes. What, what will you do if that happens? Will you curse God and die? Or will you look to him in faith? Will he be your hope? Will he be your rock? Will he be the one that's tested you and shown you to be true and you'll come out like gold? Because he does this to us. And he does it in love. He loves us by doing this to you. How can you count it all joy as you meet various trials? Kind of shaking the box of the season that we're in, right? What does God have for me next? I know God's promised things. I've got the box in my hands. I have it all here. I don't know how it's going to play out. But how can I look to see that when I open this, God's works are going to be revealed in me? He's going to show me to be a mouthpiece for him. A display for his goodness, his grace. So as we close the opening act of Ruth, we see it leaves us kind of in the dark. It gets more hopeful, I promise. But but this is where I want you to kind of stay for a second this morning. It's a time of uncertainty, of anticipation, of what might come next. So too, we begin this Advent season by remembering God's promises. He promised he would come the first time in the midst of exile and uncertainty, and a child was born in that same town of Bethlehem. That they were in. It's that same place, that house of bread. A land of famine became the land of fulfillment. The house of bread finally produced its loaf when Jesus came. We see that in Christmas season, in the, uh, of the arrival when he comes. So we see that this is a place truly ripe with the bread of life. We have the food there. We have the source. We have it all there. So in the midst of a hard providence, where else could Naomi turn but back to the place of promise? And we'll see that's where she goes next. She says, where else can I go? I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back home. Likewise, where will we go when we hear these hard sayings? Will we, like the Pharisees, be offended at the exclusivity of Jesus when all the world is saying, you're just trusting in Jesus through all this? Really? That's what you're wanting? Right? They give the hard sayings. And Jesus says, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. I, can, I am the one that leads you to the Father. No one comes but by me. I'm the only one. Will you, with the Pharisees, say, that's not going to do anything. 
I don't believe that. I don't buy that at all. Or will you as the disciples say, Lord, where else will I go? You have the words of eternal life. You're the hope I have. You're the only thing I can bank on. Let's pray, church. Father, we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know that you are working all things according to the purpose of your will for the good of those who love you. And Lord, we do love you this morning. We pray that as we look at this text, you will speak to our hearts, to our minds, all of our being, to be able to walk out those doors, having a better sense of direction, remembering the promises that you've given to us, that we wouldn't just look for signs and look at the wisdom and philosophy of the world, but that we would ultimately trust simply in Jesus that our faith would be in him, that the spirit that you've placed inside of us would be our guide, that you would lead us into all truth. Your word is truth, it says in the book of John. Let us trust you fully. Build our faith. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.